Let's do a quick overview of Jesus' ancestors to establish our thesis that God does, in fact, does mysterious things, especially in light of the fact that he has given Jesus Christ, his only son, such rotten roots. The passage we read from the Gospels of Matthew and Luke represent the genealogies of Christ from two different perspectives. We mentioned this last week also. But Matthew traces it from Abraham to Christ, and Luke traces it from Christ back to Adam. Matthew, in which Mary, in men referred to as the Jewish gospel, was written especially, of course, to the Jews, presenting him as the king of the Jews. He records the genealogy of Joseph, showing that Jesus was the legal king to the throne of David, through the line of Solomon, which was cursed. And remember, he talked about how God changed all that around as well. That's why in Luke chapter 1, verse 32, it is recorded, The Lord shall give unto him, referring to Jesus, the throne of his father David. You see, one reason for the virgin birth was to bring this about. Not just that he might be sinless, but to be sure that he would be of the kingly line that was cursed as well. The virgin birth was the only answer to that. Mary's genealogy, on the other hand, recorded in Luke 3, following the Jewish custom, is recorded in a husband's name and shows that Jesus was the natural descendant of David, not through Solomon, who was of the cursed line, but through, through Nathan, David's other son, which led down to Mary. That's why Paul could say in Romans chapter 1, for instance, and verse 3, Jesus was the seed of David according to the flesh. The virgin birth was necessary to bring this about. Abraham is the first major figure in Jesus' ancestry. And of course, he was a pagan. God pulled him from pagan roots. But yet this man came to be called the friend of God. He's called the father of the faithful, the father of the Jewish nation. Genesis 12 and chapter 16 as well record the story of God's promise to him that he would give him into his wife Sarah, a son, through which the world would be blessed, referring to Jesus, the seed mentioned in Genesis 3.15. Abraham was the beginning of these roots, as it were, a pagan called out by the grace of God to become the friend of God. But you remember when God gave Abraham and Sarah this promise, they both lacked faith that God could fulfill that promise. And so they went ahead with a plan to help God out of his own predicament. God, you've placed yourself in a predicament, but we'll get you out of that ourselves. And following the cultural procedures at that time, they went ahead and they arranged for his Egyptian female slave to have a baby that he would call his own. Sounds good, but God doesn't need our help to bring about a promise that he himself has made. But you remember now, we're talking about roots. This child born to this rebellious and sinful relationship was named Ishmael. Ever since, Ishmael has been a thorn in Israel's side as a specific punishment for Abraham's sin of belief. The Ishmaelites have been a problem to Israel throughout the history in Palestine. In fact, do you know what all the reason for the problem we have in Palestine right now is? Right here, Ishmael. This problem we're facing today in Israel, in the Palestine area, 
the crisis as we call it in the Middle East. It's rooted in this sin of unbelief for following the lead of Abraham, ancestor of Jesus Christ. The Arabs claim direct descendants from Ishmael, the prophet Muhammad. There's the fight today between Ishmael and the promised son. It goes back to roots. Roots are the roots of the problem we have in the Middle East. It is the sons of Ishmael who are calling for the extinction of Israel, the son of Isaac today. Wipe them off the mat. They're still calling for it. Isn't that right? Sure they are. Roots. Jacob was another primary ancestor of Jesus. He's infamous for his lying, his deceit, and trickery in order to steal the paternal blessing from his father Isaac. You remember the story, I'm sure. In turn, when he was dying and the process of giving his final blessing to his 12 sons, he prophesied that the Messiah would be a direct descendant of Judah. This Judah, who is Judah? Well, this Judah, who disobeyed the law of God, married a pagan Gentile, and later he committed adultery with Tamar, his daughter-in-law, who had disguised herself as a prostitute in order to seduce his father-in-law to have a child. All of these are the roots of Jesus Christ. This sounds like the bold and the beautiful, or some other modern-day soap opera, doesn't it? Look at it. Now remember, all of these, Jacob, Judah, Tamar, all are named in the genealogy of Jesus. They are all members of his roots. Quite a crew, to say the least. But the worst is yet to come. We ain't finished yet. Some other of these people are sticking their head out of the bus. The unholy and union between Judah and Tamar resulted in the birth of a set of two boys, twin boys. One of them was named Pharez. He became the ancestor of David. David, of course, is one of the top roots in Jesus' roots, major ones. In other words, David... And of course, Jesus, as a result, were direct descendants of what we call today an illegitimate offspring. What a Christmas message. Another infamous female in Jesus' already blemished roots was Rahab. She was a pagan and a harlot. With Rahab, Jesus' roots creep over the Jewish national boundaries into the pagan Gentiles. She later married Solomon and became the mother of Boaz and eventually became the great-grandmother of David, a direct relative of Jesus Christ, Rahab, a prostitute. Now, the third infamous female listed in this genealogy was Ruth. Ruth is such a wonderful book, beautiful book. It's a prophetic book, by the way. You should read it with that in mind. Beautiful book. But Ruth was a pagan Moabitess who turned from her country and her gods to follow her mother-in-law, Naomi, to Bethlehem. You know that beautiful saying in there, you know, your gods will be my gods, your people, my people. That ain't got nothing to do with marriage. That has something to do with, strangely or not, the devotion of a daughter-in-law to a mother-in-law. Isn't that amazing? But we, of course, use scripture any way we want. But Ruth later married Boaz, the son of the former harlot Rahab. A thousand years or so later, she became a direct descendant of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior 
of the world from sin. She was the great-grandmother of David. By the way, this Boaz-Ruth connection is how Bethlehem comes into the picture. Without Boaz and Ruth, there'd be no Bethlehem in the story of Jesus. This is how it comes in. Through a pagan woman, an ancestor of Jesus Christ. But now who is David? Now he was a great national hero, of course, and he certainly was no perfect specimen of godliness or moral integrity, at least not at the beginning of his life. 2 Samuel 11 depicts the intriguing drama of his illicit, illegitimate affair with Bathsheba, the wife of an upright, moral, just man. Uriah. He was a soldier under David's command. The prophet Nathan leaves us in no doubt that David, the chief ancestor of Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, was a flagrant adulterer, vicious murderer, a bold liar, and a subtle deceiver. That's one of the major ancestors of Jesus Christ, the babe of Bethlehem. Remember Nathan and his thunderous condemnation to David. Thou art the man. It rings loud and clear down to the corridors of time right now. David, the ancestor of Jesus Christ. An adulterer, a liar, a murderer, a deceiver. Surely, such tainted genealogy, such rotten roots are not what we would expect of the incarnate Holy Son of God. But yet, as though to press home the point that he's trying to make even further, God continues to record the deeds of others of Jesus' infamous descendants. Solomon, one of the sons born to David and Bathsheba, and the one through whom Jesus was eventually receive his legal rights to the throne of David, took over right from where his father left off. Good training. You see, contrary to the law of God and in spite of his wisdom, his riches, and his power, Solomon wantonly and brazenly sinned against God by setting up in his palace a harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines. Most of them were pagan idolaters. And they were in his temple on the holy mount. In 1 Kings 11, when the drama is unfolded, it is said that in his old age, Solomon's wives turned away his heart after other gods, and he did evil in the sight of God, the wisest man, turning away from God. He became an idolater himself and led the entire nation of Israel away from God. He's the one who's responsible for that. Yet, God includes him in the roots of his son, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Something must be up here. Why would God allow such things to happen? But finally, Naaman. Naaman, one of Solomon's pagan wives, gives birth to Rehoboam. Rehoboam took over as king when Solomon died. And the scripture says that he waxed even more evil than his father. So all of the evil down to this point now is summed up in this king, Rehoboam, from the line of David a chief ancestor of Jesus Christ. The scripture says he caused the kingdom to be divided and Judah was led into apostasy, idolatry, and immorality. The entire history of Judah and her kings, all who represented the line of Jesus,
was a history of corruption, evil, decadence, and idolatry. From this point on, for 400 years, right up to the time of Christ. Now, when we go through all of this history, I think we can accurately conclude that Jesus has a very blemished line indeed. Wouldn't you agree? How many of you would like to be, like to have these people as part of your ancestors that you invite over every Christmas and New Year and celebrate with you and your friends? Jesus' human roots was rotten to the core. The question naturally arises, why? Why did God choose these liars and deceivers and adulterers, pagans and murderers and idolaters to be a part of the ancestry of his only begotten son who was in the bosom of the father of eternity past, eternity future? Why did God choose these individuals to be the ancestors of his holy, spotless savior of the world? What was his purpose behind it? I believe that the answers to these questions Important for us as we celebrate Christmas. I believe that the answers contain a very important message concerning Emmanuel, God with us. And it gives us a reason that the reason for the season came the way he did. Let's look at several reasons for the rotten roots of Jesus Christ. I believe that God's purpose for his tainted genealogy, the tainted genealogy of Christ, the rotten roots of Christ, for his having earthly ancestors that were so sinful and so on. I believe there are three reasons. There are many others, perhaps, but three that I'd like to focus on. First of all, I believe that the reason for Jesus' rotten roots was to graphically establish the fact of his deity. Today, perhaps more than ever before in the church's history, the deity of Jesus Christ is being questioned. It's been ridiculed and boldly renounced and rejected. Uh, this new film and the book out by this guy Brown, uh, The Da Vinci Code, for instance, is an example. And it's being snapped up and, and devoured by millions of people, and millions of people believe what they're reading. In fact, not too long ago, there was the head of a major denomination who boldly declared before TV cameras in his area of the world that he believed that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a myth. And he was not removed from his position of the powerful Protestant domination. He's not head now, thankfully, but his time was up. That's why he left. But the head of the denomination denying the deity of Jesus Christ and still claim to be Christian. Such religious leaders may admit that Jesus was a good man, even a great man. Muslims do that. Islamic people do that, but they don't accept him as God. But to accept him as a sinless son of God? Never, never. They fail to see the inconsistency of this position when they look at Jesus as being a good, upright, moral man, but he was not the son of God. How could he be moral and upright when he claimed to be the son of God? He'd be a liar. He'd be a fraud and a deceiver. But they don't see the inconsistency of their claim nonetheless. I would like to add also that if Jesus was not God manifest in the flesh, then he was nothing but the product of his tainted genealogy, his rotten roots. He was a liar. He was a fraud. He was a deceiver. And the biggest hoax the world has ever seen. And who knows? He might have been married 
to Mary. You see, if you reject that he was a son of God, that he was, in fact, not a liar, not a fraud, he was, in fact, a moral man. If you reject these, then these things are easy for you to accept, like the Da Vinci Code. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesus repeatedly exposed himself to the ready to condemn eyes of his enemies. And he challenged them, I'm standing before you. Convict me of sin if you can. See if there be any sin in me. He challenged them. And none, none could find anything that would challenge his claim that he was a moral, upright person. They could find no fault in this just man. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, Caiaphas, the high priest, Herod, to Tetrarch, and even Pilate, the governor, none can justly condemn him. He had no sin to be observed in his life. There was no guile to be found in his mouth. And in spite of his rotten roots, his tainted genealogy, Jesus Christ was a morally upright, sinless individual. How could that be? You see, in Jesus' case, through his miraculous, unique incarnation by the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit God I believe actually reversed or perhaps better he nullified the natural laws of heredity Jesus the scripture says was in all points tempted as we are but without sin his DNA had no effect upon his life Jesus could not sin and he had no sin although he came from a line of sinners and so when he is compared with his ancestors, the comparison turns actually into a contrast. His sinless nature and behavior is just the opposite of that of his ancestors. His deity is, in fact, all the more obvious and remarkable in light of the corruption and evil nature of his ancestors. He did not inherit this sin or sinful disposition. He did not draw from his rotten roots as far as his morality was concerned. He was sinless, spotless. He was the son of God. He had to be. How else could he be the savior of the world? How else could he actually taste death for every man? Jesus Christ then was not the product of his ancestors as we are. He was different. He was unique. He was divine. How else can his perfect life be explained in light of his tainted genealogy and rotten roots? This very fact, I say, establishes his deity. In fact, every bit of modern knowledge concerning human heredity, our genes and our DNA, support, validate, and substantiate this spiritual theological claim. Jesus Christ is God. How else can we explain his rotten roots and see him as a spotless, sinless son of God? I was reading something about a DNA the other day. It says only 5% of our DNA is used up. 95% some scientists are calling junk DNA. That's what they did until last month or last couple of months. They're finding now that that junk DNA, 95% of it that they couldn't find out what it's for, there are some real reasons for this junk DNA. And they're just finding it out now. Now, if it's true that only 5% give us what we have today, what do you think is going to happen when they find out what the 95% of junk really means? 
DNA. It affects who we are, except in the case of Jesus Christ when it comes to sin. But secondly, I believe the tiny genealogy and rotten roots of Jesus also vividly illustrates the universality of salvation that he came to bring. The universality of salvation he came to bring. I believe that God chose this method to indicate to the world that salvation was not for the Jews only, but for the Gentiles as well. This is the truth. Even today, the majority of Jewish people still reject. They still believe that the Messiah is only for the Jews. But God, I believe, brought this about. He intermingled. He mixed into the genealogy of his only son to save the world. Pagans. In fact, one of the things that you really want to do when you want to talk to an Orthodox Jew, talk about Abraham. You know he was a pagan before he was a Jew. That'll get him. That's right. It's amazing. You see. This is the truth which even today I say the majority of Jews refuse to accept. As far as they're concerned, salvation is not only of the Jews, but salvation is only for the Jews. Many people, many Jewish people still believe that. But when we look at the genealogy of Jesus Christ, God the Father, we see clearly demonstrated that he would indeed fulfill his promise to Abraham that all nations of the world would be blessed in and through his seed, who is these all nations of the world. And blessed they are through Jesus Christ because the Savior was born on that first Christmas day. The Savior who is Christ the Lord. That's why Paul could say that the gospel is to the Jews as well as to the Gentiles, to the Greeks as well as to the barbarian, to the wise as well as the unwise. The gospel is for everyone, rich and poor, educated and uneducated, black and white and yellow or brown, anyone. The gospel is universal. And Jesus' rotten roots show that. This magnificent transaction resulted in a universal application of the death of Christ is all pictured and symbolized in Jesus' genealogy, his rotten roots. But one major point we must make here is that even though his death is universal for all, it is still only actual to those who personally rely and place their faith upon Jesus Christ. It's available to all, but it's only effectual to those who receive. By the way, that's why the Christmas season is so great for those who have not yet received Christ. If anything you should be encouraged to do is to receive the first Christmas gift. He's there for you. He's under the tree, as it were. But third, I believe that the tainted genealogy and the rotten roots of Jesus Christ also portrays what God desires to do in our own lives. That God can and does take a person, listen carefully now, dead in sin and trespasses, and implant within that person a new sinless nature is a miracle of the first kind. Look into your heart. Look into your life. We are rotten to the core because of sin. But yet God does a miraculous thing when we place our faith in his only begotten son. He implants within us a nature that causes us, gives us the ability to act contrary to our rotten roots. Roots that we got from Adam. If any man be in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. 
Paul believed so much in the reality of this amazing spiritual transformation that he went so far as to say that since his conversion, Paul's conversion, he knew no man after the flesh. He said, I have an entirely new perspective on life, how I view people. I don't see them the way I used to anymore. His entire outlook had changed. He saw everything and everyone through the eyes of his new self, his new man that was focused on Jesus Christ. That's a transformation that comes about. God actually nullifies the effects of our human DNA when we allow Jesus Christ to come into our life. Jesus, the Son of God, takes up residence within a filthy life of a sinner into a body tainted by sin. The Son of God comes in, as it were, in all of his purity and spotlessness to transform that dirty life of the sinner. When the angel said to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Notice, the Holy One. What is Christmas all about? Emmanuel, God with us. What is salvation all about? Emmanuel, God within us. Taken up new residence within us. That's why Paul says... Speaking to believers how he wished that Christ would be formed in them again. In other words, when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, he is formed within us as a holy, spotless one. Think about it now. Think about this mystery. This is the miracle of Christmas. That's the wonder of Christmas. That's the awesomeness of Christmas. Listen carefully. When a person opens the stable of your life, and that's what our life is, is a stable. One of the things says that if you were going to visit Jesus Christ as a baby, you better watch out where you put your foot. Why? Because you're walking in a stable. That wasn't a clean place. When you accept Jesus Christ as Savior, where does he come into a dirty, filthy, sinful life, a heart. He's got to watch out where he places his foot. But when the person opens the stable of his heart and life, no matter how much it is filled with sin or immorality or failures or weaknesses, God the Son enters into that life and transforms it into the temple of the living God. That's the miracle of Christmas. He himself indwells us through the Holy Spirit. He is born anew in us. And even as his death saves us from the penalty of sin, so his life within us saves us from our sins, the power of sin on a moment-by-moment basis. This is why we can actually say that Jesus is being reincarnated in our lives every day. But let me ask you, what kind of stable is he in? Or is he still in a stable? Or is it a temple? Are you cleaning it up? Are you allowing him to clean it up? John said, I must decrease, but he must increase. That's John talking about Christ. He will increase, I must decrease. That's what the Christian life is all about. That's what Christ being born in our lives means. Every day, you should see less and less of me 
and more and more of Jesus Christ. Or otherwise, Jesus Christ is not being born in you in your life. I live, yet not I, but Christ who lives within me. That's what Christmas is all about, to allow Christ to come into your life, to live in and through you, the God life itself. That's what Christmas is all about. And so let me say this to you. No matter what kind of a background you came from, no matter what kind of background you have, I don't care how awful, how dirty, how filthy it is, Emmanuel is here. He wants to come into your life to make it new. No matter how ill repute your ancestors were, no matter how rotten your roots, Jesus Christ in you can nullify the impact and influence of your ancestors and cause you to be unique among your ancestors. You may not be able to do anything about your ancestors, as I said before, but you can do something about your descendants. So I encourage you. In fact, I challenge you. I implore you. Begin a new strain in your family tree. Create something new in your life first by having Christ come into your life. Let him be born anew in you. And then let your children begin to draw upon not the rotten roots of a sinful life, but the holy life, the holy roots of a godly person. So if ever there was a miracle, this was it. And that's what Christmas, I say to you, is all about. If you lose this focus, you lose the true meaning of Christmas. If you miss this in your celebrations, you've missed what the celebration is all about. And all you will experience is not a holy day, but a holiday. God wants to create this miracle in you. He wants to begin Christmas in your life. Will you let him do it? Let it do it for you? Let, it do it, will let him do it in you. All you have to do is simply acknowledge that you're a sinner, that Jesus Christ, God's spotless son, paid the penalty for your sin. God raised him from the dead to validate the fact that he did just that, died in your place. And Christ could be born anew in your heart. Four things God doesn't know. He doesn't know a sin. He does not hate a sinner. He does not love. A path to his throne or a path to his way away to him apart from his son. Nor does God know a better time for you to receive his son than right now. Let's bow. Perhaps you're here, you've never yet received Jesus Christ, the first Christmas gift into your life, into the stable of your heart. Would you do so right now? You know what needs to be done. Acknowledge that you're a sinner, that God sent his son to die in your place, his holy, spotless one, that he raised him from the dead to validate that fact. Will you place faith in him right now? And this Christmas, let Christ be born anew in your life. We trust that you make that decision. Father, use your word to bring new life to someone who has not yet experienced that life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.